0: CHAPTERS 46, 47, 48, and 49 OF THE MIRROR OF THE SEA This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. THE MIRROR OF THE SEA BY JOSEPH CONRAD THE HEROIC AGE CHAPTER 46. A FELLOW NOW HAS NO CHANCE OF PROMOTION UNLESS HE JUMPS INTO THE MUZZLE OF A GUN AND CRAWLS OUT OF THE TOUCH HOLE. HE WHO, A HUNDRED YEARS AGO, MORE OR LESS, PRONOUNCED THE ABOVE WORDS IN THE UNEASINESS OF HIS HEART, THIRSTING FOR PROFESSIONAL DISTINCTION, WAS A YOUNG NAVAL OFFICER. Of his life, career, achievements, and end, nothing is preserved for the edification of his young successors in the fleet of today. Nothing but this phrase, which sailor-like in the simplicity of personal sentiment and strength of graphic expression, embodies the spirit of the epoch. THIS OBSCURE BUT VIGOROUS TESTIMONY HAS ITS PRICE, ITS SIGNIFICANCE, AND ITS LESSON. IT COMES TO US FROM A WORTHY ANCESTOR. WE DO NOT KNOW WHETHER HE LIVED LONG ENOUGH FOR A CHANCE OF THAT PROMOTION WHOSE WAY WAS SO ARDUOUS. HE BELONGS TO THE GREAT ARRAY OF THE UNKNOWN, WHO ARE GREAT INDEED BY THE SUM TOTAL OF THE DEVOTED EFFORT PUT OUT and the colossal scale of success attained by their insatiable and steadfast ambition. We do not know his name. We only know of him what is material for us to know, that he was never backward on occasions of desperate service. We have this on the authority of a distinguished seaman of Nelson's time, Departing this life as admiral of the fleet on the eve of the Crimean War, Sir Thomas Byam Martin has recorded for us amongst his all too short autobiographical notes these few characteristic words uttered by one young man of the many who must have felt that particular inconvenience of a heroic age. THE DISTINGUISHED ADMIRAL HAD LIVED THROUGH IT HIMSELF, AND WAS A GOOD JUDGE OF WHAT WAS EXPECTED IN THOSE DAYS FROM MEN AND SHIPS. A BRILLIANT FRIGATE CAPTAIN, A MAN OF SOUND JUDGMENT, OF DASHING BRAVERY, AND OF SERENE MIND, scrupulously CONCERNED FOR THE WELFARE AND HONOR OF THE NAVY, HE MISSED A LARGER FAME ONLY BY THE CHANCES OF THE SERVICE. We may well quote on this day the words written of Nelson in The Decline of a Well-Spent Life by Sir T.B. Martin, who died just 50 years ago on the very anniversary of Trafalgar. Nelson's nobleness of mind was a prominent and beautiful part of his character. His foibles, faults if you like, will never be dwelt upon in any memorandum of mine he declares and goes on he whose splendid and matchless achievements will be remembered with admiration while there is gratitude in the hearts of britons or while a ship floats upon the ocean He whose example on the breaking out of the war gave so chivalrous an impulse to the younger men of the service that all rushed into rivalry of declaring which disdained every warning of prudence and led to acts of heroic enterprise which tended greatly to exalt the glory of our nation. These are his words and they are true the dashing young frigate captain the man who in middle age was nothing loath to give chase single-handed in his seventy-four to a whole fleet the man of enterprise and consummate judgment the old admiral of the fleet the good and trusted servant of his country under two kings and a queen had felt correctly nelson's influence AND EXPRESSED HIMSELF WITH PRECISION OUT OF THE FULLNESS OF HIS SEAMAN'S HEART. EXALTED, HE WROTE, NOT AUGMENTED, AND THEREIN HIS FEELING AND HIS PEN CAPTURED THE VERY TRUTH. OTHER MEN THERE WERE READY AND ABLE TO ADD TO THE TREASURE OF VICTORIES THE BRITISH NAVY HAS GIVEN TO THE NATION. IT WAS THE LOT OF LORD NELSON TO EXALT ALL THIS GLORY. EXALT! THE WORD SEEMS TO BE CREATED FOR THE MAN. CHAPTER 47 THE BRITISH NAVY MAY WELL HAVE CEASED TO COUNT ITS VICTORIES. IT IS RICH BEYOND THE WILDEST DREAMS OF SUCCESS AND FAME it may well rather on a culminating day of its history cast about for the memory of some reverses to appease the jealous fates which attend the prosperity and triumphs of a nation. It holds indeed the heaviest inheritance that has ever been entrusted to the courage and fidelity of armed men. It is too great for mere pride. It should make the seamen of today humble in the secret of their hearts, and indomitable in their unspoken resolution. In all the records of history, there has never been a time when a victorious fortune has been so faithful to men making war upon the sea, and it must be confessed that on their part they knew how to be faithful to their victorious fortune. They were exalted. They were always watching for her smile. Night or day, fair weather or foul, they waited for her slightest sign with the offering of their stout hearts in their hands. And for the inspiration of this high constancy, they were indebted to Lord Nelson alone. Whatever earthly affection he abandoned or grasped, THE GREAT ADMIRAL WAS ALWAYS, BEFORE ALL, BEYOND ALL, A LOVER OF FAME. HE LOVED HER JEALOUSLY, WITH AN inextinguishable ARDOR AND AN INSATIABLE DESIRE. HE LOVED HER WITH A MASTERFUL DEVOTION AND AN INFINITE TRUSTFULNESS. IN THE PLENITUDE OF HIS PASSION HE WAS AN EXACTING LOVER, AND SHE NEVER BETRAYED THE GREATNESS OF HIS TRUST. SHE ATTENDED HIM TO THE END OF HIS LIFE, AND HE DIED PRESSING HER LAST GIFT, NINETEEN PRIZES, TO HIS HEART. ANCHOR, HARDY, ANCHOR! WAS AS MUCH THE CRY OF AN ARDENT LOVER AS OF A CONSUMMATE SEAMAN. THUS HE WOULD HUG TO HIS BREAST THE LAST GIFT OF FAME. IT WAS THIS ARDOR WHICH MADE HIM GREAT. He was a flaming example to the wooers of glorious fortune. There have been great officers before, Lord Hood, for instance, whom he himself regarded as the greatest sea officer England ever had. A long succession of great commanders opened the sea to the vast range of Nelson's genius his time had come, and after the great sea officers, the great naval tradition passed into the keeping of a great man. Not the least glory of the navy is that it understood Nelson. Lord Hood trusted him. Admiral Keith told him, we can't spare you either as captain or admiral. Earl St. Vincent put into his hands, untrammeled by orders, a division of his fleet, and Sir Hyde Parker gave him two more ships at Copenhagen than he had asked for. So much for the chiefs. The rest of the navy surrendered to him their devoted affection, trust, and admiration. In return he gave them no less than his own exalted soul." he breathed into them his own ardor and his own ambition in a few short years he revolutionized not the strategy or tactics of sea warfare but the very conception of victory itself and this is genius In that alone, though the fidelity of his fortune and the power of his inspiration, he stands unique amongst the leaders of fleets and sailors. He brought heroism into the line of duty. Verily, he is a terrible ancestor. And the men of his day loved him. They loved him not only as victorious armies have loved great commanders, they loved him with a more intimate feeling as one of themselves. In the words of a contemporary, he had a most happy way of gaining the affectionate respect of all who had the felicity to serve under his command. To be so great and to remain so accessible to the affection of one's fellow men is the mark of exceptional humanity. Lord Nelson's greatness was very human. It had a moral basis. It needed to feel itself surrounded by the warm devotion of a band of brothers. He was vain and tender— The love and admiration which the navy gave him so unreservedly soothed the restlessness of his professional pride. He trusted them as much as they trusted him. He was a seaman of seamen. Sir T. B. Martin states that he never conversed with an officer who had served under Nelson without hearing the heartiest expressions of attachment to his person and admiration of his frank and conciliatory manner to his subordinates and sir robert stopford who commanded one of the ships with which nelson chased to the west indies a fleet nearly double in number says in a letter we are half starved and otherwise inconvenienced by being so long out of port but our reward is that we are with nelson this heroic spirit of daring and endurance in which all public and private differences were sunk throughout the whole fleet is lord nelson's great legacy triply sealed by the victorious impress of the nile Copenhagen and Trafalgar. This is a legacy whose value the changes of time cannot affect. The men and the ships he knew how to lead lovingly to the work of courage and the reward of glory have passed away. But Nelson's uplifting touch remains in the standard of achievement he has set for all time. The principles of strategy may be immutable. It is certain they have been, and shall be again, disregarded from timidity, from blindness, through infirmity of purpose. The tactics of great captains on land and sea can be infinitely discussed. The first object of tactics is to close with the adversary on terms of the greatest possible advantage. Yet no hard and fast rules can be drawn from experience, for this capital reason, amongst others, that the quality of the adversary is a variable element in the problem. The tactics of Lord Nelson have been amply discussed, with much pride and some profit, and yet truly they are already of but archaic interest. A very few years more, and the hazardous difficulties of handling a fleet under canvas shall have passed beyond the conception of seamen who hold in trust for their country lord nelson's legacy of heroic spirit the change in the character of the ships is too great and too radical it is good and proper to study the acts of great men with thoughtful reverence but already the precise intention of Lord Nelson's famous memorandum seems to lie under that veil which time throws over the clearest conceptions of every great art. It must not be forgotten that this was the first time when Nelson, commanding in chief, had his opponents under way, the first time and the last. Had he lived, Had there been other fleets left to oppose him, we would, perhaps, have learned something more of his greatness as a sea officer. Nothing could have been added to his greatness as a leader. All that can be affirmed is that on no other day of his short and glorious career was Nelson more splendidly true to his genius and to his country's fortune." Chapter 48 And yet the fact remains that had the wind failed and the fleet lost steerage way, or worse still, had it been taken aback from the eastward, with its leaders within short range of the enemy's guns, nothing, it seems, could have saved the headmost ships from capture or destruction. No skill of a great sea officer would have availed in such a contingency. Lord Nelson was more than that, and his genius would have remained undiminished by defeat. But obviously tactics, which are so much at the mercy of irremediable accident, must seem to a modern seaman a poor matter of study. The commander-in-chief in the great fleet action that will take its place next to the Battle of Trafalgar in the history of the British Navy will have no such anxiety and will feel the weight of no such dependence for a hundred years now no british fleet has engaged the enemy in line of battle a hundred years is a long time but the difference of modern conditions is enormous the gulf is great had the last great fight of the english navy been that of the first of june for instance had there been no Nelson's victories, it would have been well-nigh impassable. The great admiral's slight and passion-worn figure stands at the parting of the ways. He had the audacity of genius and a prophetic inspiration. The modern naval man must feel that the time has come for the tactical practice of the great sea officers of the past to be laid by in the temple of august memories the fleet tactics of the sailing days have been governed by two points the deadly nature of a raking fire and the dread natural to a commander dependent upon the winds to find at some crucial moment part of his fleet thrown helplessly to leeward these two points were of the very essence of sailing tactics and these two points have been eliminated from the modern tactical problems by the changes of propulsion and armament lord nelson was the first to disregard them with conviction and audacity sustained by an unbounded trust in the men he led this conviction this audacity and this trust stand out from amongst the lines of the celebrated memorandum which is but a declaration of his faith in a crushing superiority of fire as the only means of victory and the only aim of sound tactics under the difficulties of the then existing conditions he strove for that and for that alone putting his faith into practice against every risk. And in that exclusive faith, Lord Nelson appears to us as the first of the moderns. Against every risk, I have said, and the men of today, born and bred to the use of steam, can hardly realize how much of that risk was in the weather. Except at the Nile, where the conditions were ideal for engaging a fleet moored in shallow water, Lord Nelson was not lucky in his weather. Practically, it was nothing but a quite unusual failure of the wind which cost him his arm during the Tenerife expedition. On Trafalgar Day, the weather was not so much unfavorable as extremely dangerous it was one of these covered days of fitful sunshine of light unsteady winds with a swell from the westward and hazy in general but with the land about the cape at times distinctly visible it has been my lot to look with reverence upon the very spot more than once and for many hours together all but thirty years ago Certain exceptional circumstances made me very familiar for a time with that bite in the Spanish coast which would be enclosed within a straight line drawn from Faro to Spartel. My well-remembered experience has convinced me that, in that corner of the ocean, once the wind has got to the northward of west, as it did on the 20th, taking the British fleet aback, appearances of westerly weather go for nothing, and that it is infinitely more likely to veer right round to the east than to shift back again. It was in those conditions that, at seven on the morning of the 21st, the signal for the fleet to bear up and steer east was made. Holding a clear recollection of these languid easterly sighs ripping unexpectedly against the run of the smooth swell, with no other warning than a ten minutes calm and a queer darkening of the coastline, I cannot think, without a gasp of professional awe, of that fateful moment. Perhaps personal experience, at the time of life when responsibility had a special freshness and importance, has induced me To exaggerate to myself the danger of the weather. The great admiral and good seaman could read aright the signs of sea and sky as his order to prepare to anchor at the end of the day sufficiently proves. But all the same, the mere idea of these baffling easterly airs, coming on at any time within half an hour or so, after the firing of the first shot, is enough to take one's breath away with the image of the rearmost ships of both divisions falling off unmanageable broadside on to the westerly swell and of two british admirals in desperate jeopardy to this day i cannot free myself from the impression that for some forty minutes The fate of the great battle hung upon a breath of wind, such as I have felt stealing from behind, as it were, upon my cheek, while engaged in looking to the westward for the signs of the true weather. Nevermore shall British seamen, going into action, have to trust the success of their valour to a breath of wind. The god of gales and battles, favoring her arms to the last, has let the sun of England's sailing fleet and of its greatest master set in unclouded glory. And now the old ships and their men are gone. The new ships and the new men, many of them bearing the old auspicious names, have taken up their watch on the stern and impartial sea which offers no opportunities but to those who know how to grasp them with a ready hand and an undaunted heart. Chapter 49 This the Navy of the Twenty Years' War knew well how to do, and never better than when Lord Nelson had breathed into its soul his own passion of honor and fame. It was a fortunate Navy. Its victories were no mere smashing of helpless ships and massacres of cowed men. It was spared that cruel favor for which no brave heart had ever prayed. It was fortunate in its adversaries. I say adversaries, for on recalling such proud memories we should avoid the word enemies, whose hostile sound perpetuates the antagonisms and strife of nations, so irremediable perhaps, so fateful, and also so vain. War is one of the gifts of life, but alas, no war appears so very necessary when time has laid its soothing hand upon the passionate misunderstandings and the passionate desires of great peoples. Le temps, as a distinguished frenchman has said et un galant homme he fosters the spirit of concord and justice in whose work there is as much glory to be reaped as in the deeds of arms one of them disorganized by revolutionary changes the other rusted in the neglect of a decayed monarchy the two fleets opposed to us entered the contest with odds against them from the first by the merit of our daring and our faithfulness and the genius of a great leader we have in the course of the war augmented our advantage it kept it to the last but in the exulting illusion of irresistible might a long series of military successes brings to a nation the less obvious aspect of such a fortune may perchance be lost to view. The old navy in its last days earned a fame that no belittling malevolence dare cavil at, and this supreme favour they owe to their adversaries alone. Deprived by an ill-starred fortune of that self-confidence which strengthens the hands of an armed host, impaired in skill but not in courage, it may safely be said that our adversaries managed yet to make a better fight of it in 1797 than they did in 1793. Later still, the resistance offered at the Nile was all, and more than all, that could be demanded from seamen who unless blind or without understanding must have seen their doom sealed from the moment that the goliath bearing up under the bows of the guerrier took on an inshore berth the combined fleets of eighteen hundred and five just come out of port and attended by nothing but the disturbing memories of reverses presented to our approach a determined front, on which Captain Blackwood, in a knightly spirit, congratulated his admiral. By the exertions of their valor, our adversaries have but added a greater luster to our arms. No friend could have done more, for even in war, which severs for a time all the sentiments of human fellowship, this subtle bond of association remains between brave men that the final testimony to the value of victory must be received at the hands of the vanquished those who from the heat of that battle sank together to their repose in the cool depths of the ocean would not understand the watchwords of our day would gaze with amazed eyes at the engines of our strife. All passes, all changes. The animosity of peoples, the handling of fleets, the forms of ships, and even the sea itself seems to wear a different and diminished aspect from the sea of Lord Nelson's day. In this ceaseless rush of shadows and shades, that, like the fantastic forms of clouds cast darkly upon the waters on a windy day, fly past us to fall headlong below the hard edge of an implacable horizon, we must turn to the national spirit, which, superior in its force and continuity to good and evil fortune, can alone give us the feeling of an enduring existence and of an invincible power against the fates. Like a subtle and mysterious elixir poured into the perishable clay of successive generations, it grows in truth, splendor, and potency with the march of ages. In its incorruptible flow all round the globe of the earth, it preserves from the decay and forgetfulness of death the greatness of our great men, and amongst them the passionate and gentle greatness of Nelson, the nature of whose genius was, on the faith of a brave seaman and distinguished admiral, such as, too, exalt the glory of our nation. End of Chapter 49 Recording by Peter Kelleher, Eastport Medway, Nova Scotia End of The Mirror of the Sea by Joseph Conrad